From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. In this episode of Forward Thinking, we are delighted to have our colleague Jonathan Wurzel as guest host. He chats with Dame Manu Shafiq and Andrew Sheng, and it's a wide-ranging conversation about the state of the social contract, a topic dear to MGI's heart. Minish Shafiq describes the social contract as how we organise the provision of collective goods in our society. The conversation took place in late December 2021. Michael, what struck you most about what they have to say? Well, in addition to their content, I found their tone to be striking. They're both so passionate and bold in their view that the social contract is broken. And Andrew Shang takes the notion of the social contract even further to include our contract with the planet. Yes, I agree. So let's now hand over to Jonathan. I want to spend a moment to zero in on the notion of sustainability. We often use it to focus primarily on environmental issues. Uh, but for us, it's actually about more, far more than that, notably about intergenerational fairness. This issue of how we are treating our society is one that needs to be considered in terms of its long-term economic and social societal costs and benefits. We are lucky to have two notable experts joining us. Allow me to introduce them. We have Baroness Manoush Shafiq. You are a leading economist, director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. You've served as the deputy governor of the Bank of England and vice president of the World Bank. I believe the youngest ever to hold that post at age 36. You're a leading voice on the topic of gender equity. And of course, you're also the author of a cogent and important book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society, a topic of mutual interest to MGI. Manoush, thank you for joining us today from London. And we also have with us today my friend Andrew Sheng. Andrew, I've heard someone describe you as a giant in two very important fields, which I think is excellent. First and foremost, you have extremely deep experience in the financial sector as a former central banker and financial regulator. You've advised financial leaders in several key Asian uh, economies, including China, India, and Malaysia. But more than that, uh, you're also a thinker and analyst at the most rigorous theoretical and policy levels, currently serving as a distinguished fellow at the Asia Global Institute, University of Hong Kong. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. So let's start with this, with the, the basics, if you will. Uh, what is the social contract and, and why do we need one? Manoush, can we start with you? Yeah, the social contract is how we organize the provision of collective goods in our society. And that can range from how we organize how we raise children. Are families responsible or does society share in that responsibility? Is healthcare the responsibility of individuals or is there some socialization of that issue? Similarly, what do we expect of employers? Do employers, are they expected to provide pensions and benefits to workers, or are they permitted to employ at will? All of those collective agreements around what we owe each other in society are what I would call a social contract. And they can be provided by the family, by the community, by the state, or by the market. And in every society, there's a social contract that underpins all of the key uh, stages of life, how we get educated, what happens when we get sick, what happens when we get old, how do we work, and what we owe future generations as well. 
And how is it doing? Do we need a new one? <laughs> I think it's broken. I think our social contract is broken, and that is at the heart of why our politics is so divided and so many citizens around the world are disappointed and frustrated. And the reason I think it's broken is two big drivers. One, the changing role of women, because our social contract was premised on the idea that women would look after the young and the old for free, and now women are educated and working and no longer able to provide those services. And the changing role of technology, which has changed the nature of work, and McKinsey's written a lot about that, as well as changed what we need from our educational systems. And those big powerful forces have made our old social contract premised on traditional families, getting educated from age six to 20, having very few employers. Our old model was premised on those kind of assumptions, which are no longer relevant to our societies where women are working, people have flexible jobs, people's jobs will become more flexible with technology, and people are living much longer and will need to retool and reskill later in life. And so that's putting pressure on those promises that were being made to, uh, or the beliefs that people had when they started their working lives? Absolutely. And I think a lot of the frustration you see in many countries is around disappointed expectations, promises unfulfilled. Well, Andrew, over to you. How, would, how does that definition strike you? And are those, the, uh, are those the, the places where you would see the stresses in the, in the contract today? Uh, yes, I would just add that social contract is a contract not just between members of society, but with this overpowering concept of the state. You know, I would just add this aspect. It's, it's, it's not just women, it's not just technologies, but the state. What is the state now? Um, what is the state when a multinational tech platform can be larger than a nation? Okay. Facebook has 2 million users, all right? Facebook's market valuation is, is, is under a trillion dollars. That's, uh, what, uh, six, seven times uh, Malaysia. And the, the, the market size is certainly, you know, I mean, bigger than India or China. You know, how, how, do, how do you define that? What's the contract, you know, between the individual, the somebody like this social media giants and the state, right? And, 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 and who rules? So we, we live in this very rapidly changing, uh, exactly as, as Manoush says, society. I mean, the whole social contract is broken. I totally agree with Manoush on that. Because the old concept of the state, the old concept of the family, what does it mean to the community? When a, a lot of it was supposed to be provided by, by the state, right? I mean, you don't need the family if uh, every time you need something, the state is providing for it or is not providing for it, or you, you thought it was being provided, but it's not provided. So the, there is a massive distrust now. You can see this uh, across generations, you know, across borders, and within, within the same border uh, with the establishment. You know, we have this huge uh, disconnect in the world. Now, we don't know how to get this new so, you know, social contract going, and, and how do we define it? And, and that's where we are right now. Um, see this in a, in, a, in a smaller country like Malaysia. It's a rich country, uh, you know, lots of natural resources, smaller population, but the politics is dysfunctional. And, and when that happens, you know, we're broken down into tribes along racial, religious lines 
there's a lot of built up anger. So people are asking every day, who's going to take care of my job, my health, my, my children's education, and my future. And the, if the state is not going to do it, who is going to do it? Individually, we can't, we, we can't handle, right? Well, let, let's, let's build on that in a sense that so we're identifying these issues that are affecting the individuals. How does this ultimately feed back to the broader society? And you call it the state or call it uh, the various uh, um, more, let's see, the, the folks who are not yet being affected by the, by the social contract. Is there a feedback loop that ultimately results in change? Or how do we get to that point of change? I'm curious. So Manush, where do you, where do you see that, that happening at this point? Or are we close to that? <laughs> well, I think change comes historically at moments of crisis, at critical junctions, and, and it comes as a product of kind of social movements putting pressure on, on, on society to, to change. And we're certainly in a crisis. We're certainly in a critical juncture. And at those moments, things can get better. They can also get worse. And I think that's the kind of point we are reaching. I do see pressures in many societies around demanding more front in, in a better social contract. In, in my book, What We Owe Each Other, I sort of outline what a better social contract would look like and how it's starting to emerge in different countries. Look at things like healthcare. In the wake of this crisis, the, the pressure on governments and society to do more to deal with public health concerns will be formidable. In this crisis, in the advanced economies, countries have spent 20% of GDP to keep the economy afloat. And it's kind of worked. You know, think of how many families would have been destitute, how many businesses would have gone bust had that support not been there. People have seen that it is possible to share risks more effectively. And I think people will demand that more risks are being shared. Part of the failure of our current social contract is that too many risks are being borne by individuals, as Andrew said. The risks around healthcare, the risks around employment, flexible working means I don't know how much I'm going to earn every week and I don't get any benefits or sick leave or training investment in my skills. And there needs to be a rebalance, not just for equity reasons, but for efficiency reasons. It doesn't make sense to not pool risks around healthcare around skills, uh, because all of us benefit from having fellow citizens who are healthier and more productive, because then they pay more tax, which contributes to the social contract. So I think that shift in risk sharing is certainly, I hope, on the cusp of happening, as well as a, a willingness to invest more in each other. And I think that's the other big tension we're at. There are some parts of the world who are thinking, oh my God, we've accumulated so much debt in this crisis, it's time for austerity and consolidation. There are other parts of the world that are saying, you know what, we tried that in 2008 after the financial crisis, it didn't go that well. Uh, and maybe this is a moment for investment, investment in education, new skills, and in greening the economy. And interest rates are low, and maybe at this critical juncture, that's the path we should take. Well, I, I wanted to turn to you, Andrew, on that moment about where, where Manishi just brought in about greening the economy to talk a bit about the relationship with all of this to sustainability and, and, and the broader environment. I mean, and whether you see that, I know, Andrew, you've written on that. What, what are your thoughts on whether this uh, social contract essentially extends to issues of sustainability? And, and if so, is that another opportunity that we have now to reimagine that contract? Uh, and what, uh, what would that look like? <laughs> 
Yes, this is very fundamental. I just contributed a book called Buying Time for Climate uh, Action. And the bottom line is as follows. Technically, technologically, we can solve anything if we just can get our political will to solving it. I, I used to think as a former central banker that uh, there's never enough money. After uh, last year, when central banks printed seven trillion uh, and government uh, uh, together with the central banks spent 14 trillion out of a 90 trillion or uh, up to 100 trillion global GDP, you know, money is not a problem. The, because you know, I, I think the whole concept of money, we need to rethink this. You know, money, if it is used uh, to generate long-term global public goods, uh, money will come back, and you know, you will you you will slowly go, get yourself out of the problem. If money is just for speculative purposes, it will it, it, it will it will have other issue. But to come back to the 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 sustainability issue, climate change is actually system change. And, you know, system change is one, uh, I'm sorry to use this word, big, uh, wicked problem, okay? <laughs> because, you know, do we solve this at the individual level? Do we solve it at the family level? Do we solve it at the community level? Do we solve it at the provincial level, at the uh, national level, at the global level? And, 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 and where do you start? So I think the climate change has forced us now to realize it's all entangled. You know, everything is interrelated. And the economists basically have ignored natural capital to be factored into GDP, uh, you know, since the first system of national accounting was built, was designed in 1953, okay? We didn't take balance sheet in, stocks in until 2008. All right. And so we didn't build national balance sheets effectively amongst the, the G7 uh, or now today G20 since 2008. And then the United Nations only brought in natural capital valuation in this year, April this year. Right. So we, we, we're looking at the world with very bad lenses. You know, my expression is we're looking at the 21st century with 19th century lenses. Okay, maybe even earlier, if you're looking, you know, at, at, at Descartes and uh, uh, Newton, whereas, you know, since uh, 1905, we've gone relativity, quantum, and more biological uh, or, or organic way of looking at the world. And, and that, that's why, you know, older cultures are beginning to understand that man and nature are one. But actually, modern society is killing Mother Nature and if we, you kill Mother Nature, you kill us. So, 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 so you know ourselves, right? So we really need to a, a, achieve a, a social contract between us and each other humanity, and also Mother Nature. And this conversation is only beginning. So the old model of top-down, oh, we on a piece of paper, a, a few elites will design how to handle the problems of the world is gone. It's gone. We really now need to build this bottom up. Okay? So it's it, the devil is in the details. God is perfect. The devil is in the details. And McKinsey, you know, uh, partners would know this very well. It's the granular data. It's a last mile problem. 
And what is happening is at the last mile in every community, things don't work. Right. You, you see this already. Government is writing the check. And you know, when you use the check, the guy who's sleeping on the streets is lucky to get 90% of that check because he's mm -hmm. got a with the local store and that they will take a cut. And all this is, is, you know, corruption, incompetence, you know, lack of design is such that there's anger building up in the streets, uh, not just the streets, but also in, in, in communities which are feeling very, very helpless. And mm -hmm. to see that the pandemic is climate related. Well, I, I think, first of all, I, I, I'm taking away is, first of all, that this is systemic and that the, we start with the transparency around the impacts and uh, the impacts on, on the climate and, and the impacts on the community of the climate. And uh, I think you, you just led us to another question uh, around how the pandemic has been in, well, an accelerant, potentially, of this. Is that how you see uh, the, the impact of the pandemic, is that it's bringing that day closer to a different kind of social contract? And if so, what kinds of things do you think we might see? What kinds of changes and, you know, uh, into this contract would, could, we, could we imagine over the next, uh, let's not keep it too far, uh, next two or three years? So I'll, I'll put that to you, Manoush, to start, if I could. Well, I think the pandemic amplified pre-existing problems. Inequality got worse. Women went back to having to look after children because they were not able to go to school. We saw, we actually didn't see that much, uh, you would have thought we would have had better, you know, reductions in carbon emissions at least during the pandemic, but not so much actually. And many of the existing tensions in our society, the obsolescence of certain skills, the disruptions in the labor market were laid bare and the groups that tended to suffer the most were the ones who were already at the kind of short end of the stick. And this was all made particularly ironic, of course, because many of those groups were actually deemed essential workers. You know, the world couldn't run without mm. drivers and security guards and grocery workers. But it was perfectly fine to have all the bankers and lawyers and accountants stay at home. Um, so, so I think that made it particularly ironic where the burden fell of this crisis. And I... I'd like to think that that will result in some real soul searching about our current social contract. For me, what I'd like to see is a social contract in which we provide people with better security. And by security, I mean a minimum level of income for all. I'm not a supporter of universal basic income. I think it's inefficient and I think it's against the spirit of the social contract, which asks everyone to contribute as much as they can in exchange for being looked after when they can't. But I think almost all societies now can provide earned income tax credit, direct cash transfers to the poorest households, so that there's a level below which no one should go. And I think part of the offer of security has to include requiring benefits for all workers, regardless of the nature of their contract. You know, when I started working in international development, we talked about the informal sector that is something that happened in very poor countries. But the gig economy is just the informal sector with a cool name. And workers in those sectors have no guarantees around sick leave, around pensions, around investment in their skills. And just as we developed portable pensions 
in response to people changing jobs more often. We need to develop a system of portable benefits. And so as people move from one job to another or work for multiple employers, they have a pot in which all the people who they work for contribute a bit so that they can have greater job, greater security in their lives. I think the other piece, so more security, but the other key piece of a better social contract is more opportunity. And that opportunity has a lot to do with education, investing much earlier. Everybody knows the evidence is so compelling. The early years, the first thousand days of life is when all the brain development happens. And if children don't get good nutrition and mental stimulation in those first thousand days, no matter how good a school you send them to, they'll never catch up. So early years investment, but also an educational system that works throughout life. And so the shape of our educational investment needs to change more early, more later, in order to provide opportunity for people throughout their lives. And for me, that's not just about more generating more equality. It's about what we call you know, pre-distribution policies that change the structure of opportunities for people. Our societies are so much poorer because of all of the talent that's not being used. One of the studies I cite in my book, which I really like, is called Lost Einsteins. And it looks at children who in year four of school have the same math and science skills and looks at you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, how many of those children had patents and were inventors and increased productivity? And what it finds is that if you're a child born into a poor family, you're 10 times likely, sorry, 10 times less likely to be an inventor than someone born into a rich family. And if you're born in a poor community, you're 10 times less likely to be an inventor. Controlling for the fact that you have the same math and science skills as those kids who are born into wealthier places or wealthier families. That lost talent is a loss to all of us. And I think a social contract that invests more in opportunity would, I think, as Andrew alluded to, those investments pay off in terms of higher productivity, higher inventiveness, and higher incomes for everyone. I think on that note that we're going to we're going to close here, but I just want to say that I, I found it striking that the both of you phrased the discussion in terms of the opportunity that we have. While there is risk and they're not executing on it, but that it is uh, a bottom line opportunity for the individual, for the firms, and for the states that are willing to reimagine the contract. And I, I personally feel that's uh, that's a very hopeful outcome. So. Thank you very much, Manoush, uh, Andrew, for your time. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren.